Hey everybody and welcome back to Pocket Counselor. This is your host, Mike Robb. I am extremely excited to share uh, today's podcast with you as I am interviewing um, a fantastic person who has a great story of recovery and sobriety and he also happens to be my twin brother, Tom. Now, Tom lives in Denver, and so we had to do this over the phone, so I apologize in advance for the connection errors that we experienced, but it's a fantastic interview. I think you'll really enjoy it, and it's going to be the first in many interview series that we do, and let me know what you think of it. Again, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Mike Rob. LMHC, or email me directly at MikeRobCounselor at gmail.com. Enjoy. All right, welcome back to Pocket Counselor. This is your host, Mike, and we're happy to have you. And today we have the first of our interviews. We have a very special guest, Tom. And Tom also happens to be my twin brother, which is uh, kind of interesting to have him as a guest. And let me tell you a little bit about why I picked Tom for this. Tom is... Uh, in addition to being my twin, a terrific guy, and he's a highly respected professional. He has graduate degrees, and he's also in recovery. He has, what, about seven years sober, Tom? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the podcast, Mike. Um, I am sober as of November 6, 2012. Yeah, so Wow. Wow, that's yeah, that's so seven and, years and five months ish. Yeah, almost seven and a half years. Wow, and in addition to that, you also are a mental health consumer. And the reason I wanted to have Tom on the podcast is because, as you counselors who listen to the show know. It's wonderful to have a client who has both insight and the ability to communicate that insight. And Tom has both of those. So with that said, welcome, Tom. How's it feel being on air? 
Well, it feels great. I really appreciate you having me, like I said, and uh, I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. And, of course, I am not your counselor, but you'll get maybe a sense of some of the questions I might ask. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. And I don't know if I told you, people from around the world listen to this podcast. You did tell me. Yeah, you have people all over the place. And I think that's wonderful. Your podcast is clearly taking off and has had some uh, stickiness to it. So people listen and stay engaged. It's wonderful to hear. Yeah, I'm very proud of you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how that works. So um, I guess the first question I would have for you is kind of what brings you to this point in your life? Um, Where you're sitting on a podcast talking about these things. What brings you here? I would say hard work. I Mm -hmm. think no day goes unnoticed. I think that you, are are you referring to like recovery? Uh, Yeah, kind of what's your background? Give us sort of the Cliff Notes notes, uh, version of your story. Give us your elevator. Yeah, so... Uh, 21, 22 years old, I tried cocaine for the first time. And the funny thing about cocaine is it's like, uh, Heraclitus said, you, no man steps in the river the same time because the river is never the same and the man is never the same. And, um, when it comes to cocaine specifically for me, the first time is the greatest, and then you're always chasing the high. So I did that. I messed around with Adderall for a while. It was more, well, and also hydrocodone, Oxycontin, recreational, like at parties. It wasn't until I was depressed at around 24 that uh, I started really heavily getting into drugs at 25 and lost much of I remember everything, but lost most of my life in 25, at 25, and overdosed on November 5th, and went to a rehab facility that I think saved my life, and I took it seriously because there were months prior where I wanted to quit. I didn't know how to quit. The addict inside says, don't quit. They'll know your secrets. And so I I went ahead and I guess had to have an overdose in order to do so. Um, prior to that, and this is something that's been discussed with me with my counselor, uh, often drug abuse is a way of coping with things like bipolar disorder, which I suspected I had at about 18 because I would have these mood swings that would go from total euphoria, like total, total euphoria, like Oxycontin euphoria to deep depression, not getting out of bed till 4 p.m., that sort of thing. And even as a child, I I felt depressed at times. So I think that these were ways of masking my uh, inner demons 
as a result, into my late 20s, I got married and moved to Colorado, which was always a dream of mine, happened to be a shared dream of ours, my wife and me. And in November, I forget the date, November of 2018, perhaps you can remind me, I think November 2018. Yeah, November 2018, I attempted to commit by consuming 10 Weltrin extended release pills. And instead of dying, I had a seizure and drove off the road. That put me in a psychiatric ward for a period of time. And I've been in recovery from that for a while. I think that was the, the point where it occurred to me that I had bipolar. Well, it occurred to psychiatrists that I had bipolar disorder. And I've been on medications that have managed it very effectively. And life has been all the richer for it. Yeah, I should say so. That's amazing. And two things, because we're on the phone. <laughs> of course it cut out right as you said it. Um, but to clarify that last part you were talking about was a suicide attempt. And so this has all been quite a bit considering we're now 33. It's been a lot in 33 years. And I hope that my next 33 are a bit less complex. And I suspect that they will be. And um, yeah, I, I did. I committed suicide. It just didn't take is the way I kind of put it. It was not a cry for help. It was not, look at me, I'm taking a few pills, now rush me to the hospital. It was designed specific to the mission, and the mission failed, which at the time I wasn't super pleased with, but I've grown to feel very lucky and fortunate enough to be alive and really two close calls with death. I'm, I'm, I live a charmed life. Yeah, I, I should say so. And it's, um, you know, I could sit here for hours asking you questions about this, but I promised you I would stick somewhat to the script. Mm-hmm. Um, one was, do you remember, do you have a moment where you were like, I can distinctly remember when I first felt kind of the inklings of mental illness in my life. Do you have a moment or a time frame? I wouldn't describe it as mental illness so much as I would say it was about six or seven years old, and I felt very sad uh, frequently. What was that like, being six or seven and not really having the language to talk about it? Well, I would tell mom and dad that I was sad or that I felt forlorn, which is not the word I used at the time. But I would sit on my swing and stare at the sky and kind of wonder what everything was all about. But I felt uh, intense emotion about the sort of the, not the meaningless of life, but 
what it all meant. And I, I did not find meaning in the Bible. I thought Jesus was a cool dude, but it didn't speak to me in the way that it speaks to others. And I felt without a meaning. Oh, dear. We seem to have lost Tom. Can you hear me? Ah, you're back. Okay. Sorry, I cut out. Well, you can edit this. Oh, yeah. I'll have my uh, professional staff do that. Yeah. So, um, so you've been kind of involved with the mental health system for a little under 10 years, right? A little under 10 years, yes. Yeah. Looking at all of it, and maybe it encompasses more than 10 years, but what has helped you the most, would you say? Being active, uh, as they say, working the program, being hyper aware of my emotions throughout the course of a day. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, everything is black and white, and I think that's just how the bipolar brain works. I have very difficult time thinking in the gray, <clears throat> and in fact, I hate thinking in the gray, but sometimes you have to understand that flexibility in life is key. So working on the program, I've been through various recovery groups and psychiatric groups, and I understand things from a fundamentally intellectual level, but at the time I feel Sometimes feelings can overwhelm the psychological side of things. And it's important to understand how to manage and mitigate those things when they arise. Now, how to do that is, for me, it's a matter of getting out of my own brain space. It's uh, meditation is key. And reading, helping my wife making sure that I go for a walk. Uh, I recently lost my job, which is not super fun in this climate. And I think being aware, being strong without being fake Mm -hmm. is the key. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that having, you're kind of saying, having strength, but also authenticity and being strong enough to say you're feeling weak. I think when you are strong enough to say that you are weak or that you feel down is the hardest thing to do, especially to admit to a loved one because it puts a certain degree of burden on them where Mm -hmm. they don't know how to handle it Mm -hmm. and your words, you put your shit on other people when you do that and you have to be careful with that. Mm -hmm. So to do so effectively, one must formulate their language in a certain way. That's a really good point. Um, What's something that 
you had thought would help you or hoped would help you but didn't? Mindfulness. Oh, interesting. Say more about that. And and this is no offense because I know that you've covered it. Well, no, that's okay. It's... um, it's not a panacea, right? Um, what What is it about it or you or the situation where you find mindfulness doesn't work for you? Well, I tend to move more towards the Vipassana form of mindfulness where you go within and then all of a sudden you start to feel what you feel. And theoretically on these 10-day silent retreats, it's useful to the brain to sort of like when you have an itch and you avoid it, but then you feel the humongous discomfort during it. And for me, that's where it is. Uh, Silencing the mind in that manner does not work for me terribly well. It's a bit like taking a Xanax where it works for an hour and then it's done. And similar to Xanax, you can keep taking that practicing. But for me, in my experience only, not saying it doesn't work for people, but mindfulness has, for one, it's become very watered down. And it comes from, from Zen meditation, specifically known as Chan which originated through China and then from, well, from India and then through China and then into Japan, um, wasn't, wasn't the key to me. It was, there was, um, as Grandpa Rob said, there was a, light, a lot of light, not a lot of warmth. I think that's a perfect way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, I think it's gutsy on your part to take something that's pretty sacrosanct, um, especially with some counselors, and say, look, this doesn't work for me. That takes insight. And, you know, something I wanted to ask you is what advice would you give someone like yourself? Hang in there. Things do get better. Things always get better. Uh, Warren Buffett had said, if you invest in something long enough, it will eventually grow. And there will be ups and downs throughout the course of your life. And things are not going to be perfect. By that, things are not always going to go the way that you want them. I had numerous job interviews that ended up not going the way I wanted. And then I landed this dream job that I had instead and immediately felt gratitude for not having gotten those other jobs because I wouldn't have been applying. So things have a way of working out. I'm in this liminal space. where I don't know what the future will hold, but in a way that's the adventure of life. And I, in my view, the point of life is to live adventures to enrich it and to sort of thicken it out over the course of years and that's the whole point of living Mm. that's fascinating that's a really good um, sort of recipe for life if you will 
and one that I definitely sense you've gone through a lot of hardship. Yeah, I mean, I've I've smoked crack. I've done things that I'm not proud of. Uh, There was a time where if I had to choose between mom and crystal meth, I would have chosen I would have chosen crystal meth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when it takes control, it, it's got you have no control over it. And people who say, "Oh, I can control it," or "I only do coke on the weekends." Well, what weekends don't you do coke? You tell me. And uh, for some people, they can take it once and they hate it, and they never do it again. Thank God. But that was not for me. It was the ultimate. It's something I will never experience again. And no matter if I went back to it, I would never experience it again either. It's like I say, the first time is the first time. Yeah, yeah, you're never the same again. Um, What advice would you give family and loved ones of people like you? Because I'm sure that that, you know, the experiences you've been through alone are pretty dicey. They've been difficult, but there's probably been quite a bit of navigating loved ones and the people who care about you. What kind of advice would you give them? Well, there's notably going to be anger and frustration at first. Anger, obviously, is a function of fear. And those things can be tough to deal with when you're in recovery. Uh, less so in my suicide attempt, it's more people feel sorry for you or they can't figure it out in my case because I seemed fine. Right. And uh, well, maybe I think you couldn't figure it out to an extent. No, I could figure it out. I hated my life. And uh, I I felt like it would be better if it were gone. So I think the best way to handle these things is understand that it takes time. My wife is still processing it 16 months later. And I, I, um, I would say that the best way to do it is to maintain open communication and understand that people communicate things in loving ways, but often in different ways than how you anticipate them Mm -hmm. and make Mm -hmm. sure that you are aware of that and recognize that it's not always about you, that what you think you need versus, what you're receiving from the universe or from people are often two different things. Well, that's, that's fascinating to me. Uh, My therapist brain clicks on and earlier you said, I don't like living in the gray. I like black and white, but it seems like the statement you just made is very much the gray. It has to be because there is no, there's no uh, red pill or whatever the phrase is. There's no third pill, I should say. Um, Mm -hmm. You have to think in the gray in those terms. So for me, I adjudicate it by saying, 
well, I'm thinking in the black and the white, but really I am thinking in the gray by doing that. But from, I tricked my brain by saying, well, this is black and white. I, I manage this by tailoring communication styles to different people and listen to them in specific ways. Hmm. I see. So you've had to adjust kind of your way of working with people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, Well, Tom, finally, and I know that your agent said you were only available for 20 minutes. So, um, you know, what's something that we haven't talked about that you think should be talked about in this interview? What's something I didn't ask that you would like me to ask? I would say why I got into drugs in the first place. That's a very good question. What do you think led you to that? Well, I remember specifically, well, Adderall's tricky because it's a prescription med, so you don't really think anything of it. Mm-hmm. But I remember very, very vividly that we were slightly drunk, and I remember my friend, who was not my friend, suggested we pick up cocaine. And I knew, even though I was drunk, that this was a terrible idea. It's the drug you're all told, oh, God, don't do this, right? It's it's the it's not going to make a heroin. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's not good. You shouldn't do it. And I can't. I still can't understand why I chose to do that. And it's it's something that baffles me to this day. But when it came to other things, so then it's a downward spiral, like crack cocaine, crystal methamphetamine, methamphetamine, uh, smoking amphetamine. It's It all sort of, it's like, well, I crossed this bridge, it's easier the second time around. It's much easier the third time around. It becomes rote the fourth time around and then becomes compulsory the fifth time around. So I think what really needs to be addressed is drug culture among young people more so than my example. It's, absolutely rampant in colleges and people lose their lives to it uh, metaphorically or literally. Mm -hmm. But that's the one thing I cannot ever figure out is why I chose to go through with it. Because in the back of my mind, I knew this is a terrible idea. I shouldn't do it. And I did it anyway. But Chris Cornell, the singer had mentioned and he had done crack cocaine at one point and he said he wished he had known after he took that hit off that pipe how it would ruin his life for years and it's one of those things where you go back in time and think you have no idea the effect it will have on on your life on your on decades of your life. Um, 
you're not if you're if you're not committed to sobriety. I was very committed to sobriety, and I was thankful to have wonderful care, and that was big. Just as I am committed to living now, uh, full and happy life. And I still deal with depression sometimes. But you have to work the program. That's the number one thing I would say is you can't let go of yourself. It's like staying in shape. You can't just sit around and eat Doritos all day and then be surprised that you're 300 pounds. You have to work at it every day. And some days are easier than others. But even now, seven and a half years, almost sober, I am very cautious. And it's something you have to remember at all times. You have to remember all of it. Otherwise, you're in trouble. If you only remember the good times, how it felt, that's where you're in trouble. You have to remember your mom screaming and crying. You have to remember the people you've hurt. You have to remember the fact that you've almost killed people. You have to remember the things too. And that's what keeps you on the straight and narrow. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. Um, and I You cut out. Uh, can you hear me now? Yep. Okay. Well, it's powerful, and I think that um, the secrets are what perpetuates this. And I wonder if in colleges and places where young people are, if um, not that it were normalized, but that the feelings and desires to experiment were normalized, if people did take that first hit of crack, if they would feel more likely to then go. It's something to think about. And I'll be honest, I could sit here listening to you talk for hours. So it's fascinating to hear your perspective. And I have no doubt that we're going to have you on the show again, Tom. And I really appreciate you sharing this stuff. It's fantastic. I know the audience is going to just really dig it. And, uh, appreciate what you have to say. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, like I say, and I really appreciate Mike, very proud of the work that you put into this podcast. And I am in, I am anticipating and looking forward with great joy, the success that you will have with this endeavor. Hey, thank you, Tom. And so, everybody, that's my twin brother, Tom, and uh, we'll uh, put some contact info for him in the description, and we will see the rest of you on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. So, I really enjoyed that interview with Tom. He's got so much great stuff to say. And uh, my biggest takeaway from it was the importance of reaching out if you need help. And I think that that's tremendous. And I have no doubt we'll have Tom back on the show again and perhaps even his wife. And uh, 
you know, others as well. And I really enjoyed doing the interview. And I think that we'll do more episodes like this again. So shout out to Tom, who is not on any social media, but uh, I really appreciate him being on on the show with us. So this is Mike Robb, and I'll see you all next time.